Well, we are so grateful for the ministry of the choir and for all of the time uh, that uh, they are investing into leading us in worship. And, you know, the, the worthiness of the one worshiped is made manifest by this many people giving this much time, having spent so many years uh, pre- preparing and developing their talents in order to give praise and glory to the one to whom it is due. And so as you think about the amount of time and effort invested into the choir blessing us with such glorious worship, be reminded of the one for whom it is done and give him glory. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 and we're continuing our study of this section of scripture which I've entitled Fearful, Flawed, and Faithful, the story of Hezekiah. Fearful, Flawed, and Faithful. Looking at key event in the life of a real man who lived in a real time and faced some real difficult challenges. Last week we studied chapters 36 verse 1 through chapter 37 verse 13 which records the 11 pressure tactics which Rabshakeh the Assyrian commander used to try to intimidate Hezekiah into surrendering the holy city of Jerusalem without a fight. This morning we're going to see how Hezekiah responded. Last week we looked at Rabshakeh's intimidation tactics. This morning we're going to look at how Hezekiah responded when he was under such great pressure. I want to remind you what situation Hezekiah was in. The Assyrian army had crushed nation after nation after nation. They had obliterated them. They had enslaved them. And then they invaded Judah, Hezekiah's kingdom. And they had captured city after city, after city, after city. In fact, all of the fortified cities had been captured, it says in chapter 36. And then they sent an army to Jerusalem. As they were finishing up with the next to last city, now they come to the capital city. And so Hezekiah is facing the Assyrian army. How did he respond to the intimidation and the pressure? From his godly example. We're going to glean some lessons for how we can respond when evil powers try to intimidate us. And so we're looking this morning at how to respond to intimidation tactics. How to respond to intimidation tactics. And we're going to look at four different principles, but we're going to spend most of our time this morning on the first principle because it's so important. So let's look at the end of chapter 36 where we find our first principle for responding to intimidation and the first principle is this sometimes the best response is no response at all don't respond until the king commands you to speak let's pick up the context in Isaiah 36 back in verse 13 if you remember Rabshakeh is going to cry out to all of the soldiers on the wall and he's going to say in verse 13 hear the words of the great king the king of Assyria thus says the king do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying the Lord will surely deliver us the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria do not listen to Hezekiah And then skip down to verse 21, which records the response of the people on the wall. 
It says, but they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So the people on the walls kept silent. They kept silent because Hezekiah had commanded them not to answer him at all. And they also knew that it was Eliakim and Shebna and Joah who were the ones that had been chosen to speak on behalf of the king and of the kingdom. So the rank and file soldiers knew the king had commanded them not to answer and the king had delegated the right to speak on behalf of the kingdom to these three men. I want you to think what would have happened if the rank and file soldiers on the wall had took it upon themselves to communicate directly with Rabshakeh. You know, the weaker ones amongst them may have tried to negotiate and that would have ended in compromise and capitulation and disaster as panic spread through the ranks. The braver amongst them may have hurled insults at Rabshakeh. Bring it on! We're not afraid of you! And that could have resulted in Rabshakeh ordering an immediate attack on the city which was poorly defended and no match for the Assyrian army. So when evil powers make threats, we need to respond with wisdom. When evil powers make threats, the people of God need to carefully and prayerfully consider who should respond, when we should respond, and how we should respond. We need to think about who should respond, when we should respond, and how we should respond. Hezekiah, it is clear, was wise to command everyone to stay silent except the official delegation. In those days, enemies would always try to divide. They'd, you see Rabshakeh trying to, to convince the people that Hezekiah is deceiving them or to not listen to their leaders. And so in order to maintain unity, it's important to have a unified response to intimidation tactics. So sometimes the best response is no response at all. And this is, historical example is instructive for us, but I think really it is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ which really helps us to understand this principle. As I was thinking about this, I began thinking about how the Lord Jesus responded during his trials. I don't know if you've ever noticed, at times in the Lord's trials, he stayed silent and didn't answer. At other times, he did answer, and I've always been curious why was it that he answered sometimes and didn't answer other times so I spent a significant amount of time this week actually diverting from Isaiah and doing a study through the four gospels of when Christ answered and when he stayed silent during his trials I want to just summarize what I found for you it could be a separate message but I'll just summarize Jesus when he was being intimidated, pressured, he's under trial for his life, he did not answer when he was asked to respond to ridiculous lies by malicious witnesses. Didn't respond to even a word. He didn't respond when he was asked to answer false accusations made by false teachers. He did not answer when he was asked questions by Herod only to satisfy Herod's morbid curiosity. He knew Herod had no interest in the truth. It was pointless to answer his questions. 
Jesus did not answer when asked for information about his disciples. He did not answer when asked for information that could put his family and his relatives and his hometown in danger. He did not answer while he was being mocked, while he was being beaten, and while they were driving the nails through his hands and feet. In fact, the Lord's silence while he was being tortured and crucified was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He did not answer while being mocked, beaten, and crucified. When did Jesus speak during his trials? Well, Jesus answered when he was asked, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? That's a question he did answer. He answered when he was asked, Are you the King of the Jews? He answered that question. He answered when he was asked, If you're the Messiah, tell us. He answered when he was asked, Are you the Son of God then? He answered when he was asked what he had taught. And he answered when he was asked why he wasn't afraid of human power. Do you see a theme? He answered when the questions were about the gospel and about who he was. So I want to take what we've learned from that brief excursus into the Lord's example and add some specific applications from other passages as well and come up with a little bit of a summary list of when the best response is to not respond at all. When should we keep silent? When should we choose not to respond at all? And the first principle is don't respond when it is not your role, right, or responsibility to speak in an official capacity. That's what we learned from Isaiah 36, 21. The people on the wall, it wasn't their role, right, or responsibility to give an official reply on behalf of King Hezekiah or on behalf of the kingdom of Judah. That responsibility had been delegated to the three men who are mentioned multiple times in the passage to emphasize that they and they alone were given the right to speak. Applied to our context, I want you to think about what could happen if our church was ever targeted by hostile media or by angry activists or whoever might come against and try to slander the church. You know, that's happening to a lot of churches, and I think it's probably more a question of when that will happen to us rather than if that will happen to us. And so I want to gently urge you that if that happens, you need to do a lot more than think before you speak. You definitely need to think before you speak, but before you speak, you should also think about whether you should speak. You need to think about whether you should speak and only then think about what you should say. So I'd like you to consider whether you should speak at all in those hostile kind of circumstances especially if confronted by hostile media, nine times out of ten, they're simply looking for a way to make a fool out of you. They are willing to use selective editing and ask leading questions. They're simply looking. They're not really interested in any answers. They're just simply looking. They're trying to find someone coming out of the church that they can stick a microphone in the camera in front of and get a silly answer from. That's what they're looking for. They want to use some out-of-context statement or some poorly worded response by someone in the church in order to trash the whole church. That's what's happened to many local churches. 
Now, you need to let the Holy Spirit guide you. I certainly don't want to limit your freedom to respond if you feel led to do so. But I want to urge you, don't let yourself become a stooge for gotcha journalism. And my advice to you is this. Don't risk giving them the soundbite they're looking for. And the best way to avoid giving them the soundbite they're looking for is to not engage with them at all. I want you to consider something. It is difficult for professional spokespeople who are specifically trained to interact with the media. It is difficult for professional spokesmen to avoid making a comment that can be taken out of context or used against them. So if professionals have trouble doing it, how do you think you'll fare the first time someone sticks a microphone in front of your face? Most people have no idea what that experience is like. I speak in front of lots of people every week. But the very few times where I've been put on camera, I've experienced a nervousness that really shocked me. It was difficult to think, it was difficult to speak clearly, and it was really easy for things to come out wrong, to come out sounding silly or false or just off topic. You are likely to not speak well in that circumstance. So my advice, and frankly my appeal to the members of the church is this. If we ever do have a situation where we're being confronted by hostile media, my appeal is this. Unless you've been appointed as the official spokesman for the church by the elders, and unless you have an official statement that the elders have prepared for you to share with the press, please don't comment on the hot-button topics that we may be faced with. Instead, I encourage you to politely refuse to comment and encourage them to direct any questions they have in writing to the elder board. And that will give the elder board time to pray and to consider whether we should respond at all and if we should respond, how we would respond. So the first principle is don't respond when it's not your role, right, or responsibility to speak officially. Second principle is this. Don't respond when answering would confirm that evil powers have the right to compel your speech. Don't respond when answering would confirm that evil powers have the right to compel your speech. The Lord, when he was on trial in Mark chapter 15, he, was, he answered a question posed to him by Pilate. But then Mark chapter 15 verse 3 says this, says the chief priest began to accuse him harshly and then Pilate questioned him again saying do you not answer see how many charges they bring against you but Jesus made no further answer so Pilate was amazed I think the reason Jesus didn't answer is because he realized that continuing to answer would demonstrate that the chief priest had authority over him and they did not because he of course was the son of God Whoever has the right to demand answers is the one who's in charge and the one who's in control. In a courtroom, it's the judge who can compel speech. It's not the defendant nor the prosecuting attorneys. So whoever has the right to demand answers from the other person is the one who is in charge and in control. So sometimes you need to not respond lest you demonstrate by your response that the person demanding an answer from you has authority over you. 
Sometimes, like Jesus did with Pilate, we have to push back against illegitimate abuses of authority by refusing to answer at their beck and call. You are not at their beck and call. So don't respond when answering would confirm that evil powers have the right to compel speech. Next, don't respond when answering would give legitimacy to obvious lies or elevate the importance of false teachers. Don't respond when your response will simply give legitimacy to an obvious lie or elevate the importance of someone whose importance should not be elevated. In Mark 14, verses 55 through 61, it says that the chief priests were trying to find witnesses against Jesus, but they couldn't find any. And it says in verse 56, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony. And it says in verse 59, but even in this respect, their testimony was not consistent. Verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Why? Because the lies were obvious. Their testimony wasn't consistent. It was obvious to all. Jesus knew he had no reason to answer. Answering would have only legitimized the lies. Now lies like the ones used at Jesus' trial can be so obviously false that they do not need to be answered and therefore should not be answered. The only thing answering them will do is draw more attention to them and give them more legitimacy. Sometimes it's important to remember you don't have to respond to every critic. Some critics aren't worth responding to. And if you respond to them, you only elevate them. There will be occasionally uh, someone who will kind of try to make it their mission to take down some Christian leader and they'll just snipe at them on social media and in every context. And a lot of times those leaders are well advised to absolutely ignore that person. They're not worth responding to. Sometimes the best way to disarm an obvious lie is to dismiss and ignore it altogether. And sometimes the best way to silence critics is simply to make it clear their slander isn't worth a response. Next principle is don't respond to questions which are designed to distract, to detract, or to divert people's attention away from the main issues. In Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 12, Jesus is taken before Herod. And it says, Herod wanted to see Jesus perform some, some sign. He just wanted to get Jesus to perform like a circus animal or something. And so he starts asking him all these questions just to satisfy his morbid curiosity. And it says, Jesus didn't answer him a word. He stayed silent. Because he knew Herod's questions were just diversions away from the main issue. I want to also point out in Mark chapter 14, which we just read, Jesus stays silent when, he, when, he's, when all of these you know, false witnesses are making these obvious lies about him. But then, in verse 61, it says, he kept silent and did not answer, right, those false charges. But then listen to what happens next. Again, the high priest was questioning him and asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So in one verse, we see a switch. In Mark 14, verse 61, at the beginning of the verse, it says, he kept silent and did not answer. 
And then at the end of the verse, it says that he answered and said, I am. So he didn't answer the obvious lies, but when he was asked the important question about who he was, that question he answered. So if you're ever being interviewed or you're facing kind of a hostile interview, don't answer the gotcha type questions. Don't answer questions that distract from the main issue. Answer only questions that have to do with the message that the king has given you to share, and that is the gospel. You don't have to answer every question asked of you. You're not at their beck and call. We live in an era in which objective journalism, which is designed to ascertain the truth and figure out the main issues, is being replaced by activistic propaganda where the goal of the so-called journalist is simply to catch someone saying something that they can use against them. It's gotcha journalism. Don't be their stooge. It is fine to politely decline to answer leading questions. It's also fine to politely decline to answer off-topic questions. And it is fine to gently redirect the conversation to something more important. So sometimes if you're asked a question, and this is not only in media interviews, but sometimes if you're being kind of accosted at work or someone's challenging you, and they ask you some questions, sometimes you need to respond with respectfully, that's not the main issue. The main issue is, and then you redirect them back to the gospel. And then you share what scripture says about it. When I was in seminary, uh, when John MacArthur was doing a Q&A with us as students, one of the students asked him, hey, if we're ever interviewed by the media, what advice do you have for us? If you remember back in that time, uh, MacArthur had been interviewed by Larry King on a number of occasions, and those were tough interviews, but he did very well in, in explaining the gospel and defending the faith. So one of the students asked him, well, what, 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 did, what did you do when you were preparing to go on Larry King? What, what advice do you have for us? And MacArthur's answer, I think, was really wise. He said, I prayed about what God wanted me to share with the people. And then no matter what Larry asked me, I said that. In other words, he's saying, look, he told us, you're an ambassador of Christ. You're not there to let someone pick your brain. You're there to deliver the king's message. So figure out what the king wants you to say, and then no matter what they ask you, share that. What does the king want you to share, of course, is the gospel. We're going to see when we, in a couple sections later, that's what the apostles did. No matter what they were asked, they answered with the gospel. They were asked all of these leading questions designed to tear down the Christian movement, but they responded with talking about the main thing, which is who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Next principle is don't respond when answering would endanger your family or other Christians. Now, this isn't one that we encounter very often, at least right now in this country, but in other places in the world, this is a very important one and it could be in, become important here. Don't respond when answering would endanger your family or other Christians. There's an interesting little statement made in John chapter 18, verse 19. In John chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus is being questioned, and it says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. 
So the high priest asked him about his disciples and his teaching. How do you think Jesus answered? What did he not answer and what did he answer? The answer is, he did not answer the question about his disciples. He did answer the question about his teaching. Verse 20 says, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Jesus did not answer the high priest's question about his disciples because doing so would have endangered them. In chapter 19 of John, verse 9, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate asked Jesus in John 19, 9, where are you from? And it says, but Jesus gave him no answer. Why didn't he answer this question, where are you from? Because he didn't want Roman soldiers in his hometown the next day. That's why he didn't answer that. He still had cousins there. He still had relatives there and friends there. He did not respond when answering would endanger his family or other Christians. Jesus was careful not to give evil people information they could use for evil purposes. On four or five different occasions in my overseas uh, ministry, I've been interrogated or questioned by border guards or by armed soldiers or by the successor agency to the KGB. And they are really good at getting information out of people. So you have to be really wise. And you have to remember that sometimes the most innocent sounding question like where are you from is designed to get information that they can use against someone else. And so often in those situations, silence is your best defense. I one time looked at an FSB agent and said, I'm not going to answer your questions. So send me back if you want or whatever. And he actually respected that and let me through. Sometimes silence is the best answer and don't respond when answering would endanger your family or other Christians. Point F is don't respond when asked to deny the faith. Our loyalty to God is not up for discussion or any negotiation. This is a principle that I gleaned from Daniel chapter 3 verse 16 and Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 and this of course is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and then of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, if you remember, the king is trying to intimidate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into bowing down to the idol. He's, I'm going to throw you in a furnace if you don't bow down and worship this idol. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. See, this isn't up for discussion, king. Our loyalty to God is not up for negotiation. Chapter 6, verse 10, a law is passed making it illegal to pray to God. It says, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. No discussion, no negotiation, just loyalty to God and obedience. Daniel continued practicing his faith exactly as he had always done, despite the new law. 
So likewise, if there's ever a law passed which would restrict us from doing what Scripture commands, our reply is going to be like the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. And if we face or are threatened with harsh penalties like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, like them, we will refuse to even discuss compromising our convictions. It's not up for debate. Next principle, don't respond directly to ridiculous accusations. But instead, use the opportunity to share the gospel. I gave you a bunch of references up on the slide of different times where the different apostles were put on trial or were questioned and in the Roman system, if you were accused, you had an opportunity to give a defense. And it's interesting how they used their opportunity to give a defense. They did not use their opportunity to give a defense to try to clear themselves of the charges or to try to refute the false charges against them. They used their opportunity to give a defense to share the gospel consistently. As I was studying these passages, it was over and over and over again the same thing. Ridiculous lies and accusations. How will the apostles respond? By sharing the gospel. Lies, gospel. Lies, gospel. We respond to lies with the good news of the gospel. Why? Because we're ambassadors of Christ. And so our primary goal is not to defend ourselves, but to proclaim the king's message. And that is the gospel. Final principle in this section. Don't respond until you have your temper under control and can speak respectfully. As I was studying those responses of the apostles in Acts, I came across, of course, Acts 23, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read this for you because it's instructive for us. Paul is under trial. And it says... Paul looked intently at the council and said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So he's saying, I'm innocent. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. So right there in the trial, the high priest has someone just deck the apostle Paul right across the mouth. How does Paul respond? Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Now, Paul obviously has a point. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wonder like, you know, I mean, he just got hit in the mouth. Did it sound a little bit more like this? God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Sorry. You know, the fat lip. I, I don't know. That's first service I didn't do that. I shouldn't have done it here. <laughs> Your second service, you get the like, yeah, yeah. Not as disciplined of a preacher, Brett. You know. He loses his temper. Look at verse four. It says, the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? Verse five, Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He admitted he messed up. He shouldn't have responded that way. You gotta keep your temper under control so that you can speak respectfully. I want you to recall from last week, Saul Alinsky, in his Rules for Radicals, writes, Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It is almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition who then react to your advantage. Do you see what he's trying to say? He's saying, try to make them mad. 
trying to get under their skin. Ridicule them, mock them, strike them, get them mad so that they'll lash out in anger and when they do, you have them. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Don't respond until you have your temper under control and you can speak respectfully. I want to remind you of what Peter said to the persecuted early church in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the passage where he famously says, always be ready to make a defense for your faith and give a reason for the hope that is in you. But listen to the instruction that he gives both before and after that one. 1 Peter 3, 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. See, they're gonna try to goad you into doing something wrong. They're gonna goad you into lashing out at anger. They're gonna goad you into responding you know, to mockery with mockery. They're going to try to get you to cry out, you whitewashed wall. Get your temper under control so that you can give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence, keeping a good conscience so that they will be put to shame because it's obvious to everyone who is speaking for God and who is speaking for the devil. So our first principle for responding to the intimidation tactics used by evil powers is Silence is often golden. Sometimes the best response is no response at all. Keep silent until the king commands you to speak. Now we're going to move through the last three principles very quickly, so buckle up and stay with me. Principle number two, take the matter to God immediately. You can't withstand the pressure on your own. You are going to need help. This principle is from Isaiah 37, verses 1 through 7. Rabshakeh is there, the threats are there, the intimidation is there, the army is there, and it says at the end of chapter 36 that the three delegates from Judah, it says they came to Hezekiah with their, tor- clothes, with their clothes torn as a sign of distress, and they told him the words of Rabshakeh. So what did Hezekiah do? Did he assemble his generals and say, we got to figure out how to defend the city? Did he send his diplomats out to try to make alliances with Egypt or ask for help from somebody? No. Here's what Hezekiah did. Chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, 
Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Take the matter to God immediately. You cannot withstand the pressure that the world will put upon you on your own. You need help. Hezekiah did the right thing. He went straight to the house of the Lord. Not to generals, not to diplomats, to the Lord. And the first person he wanted to hear from was Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord. If you're facing intimidation tactics and pressure, whether it be at work or school from your relatives, as soon as you're under threat, as soon as you're facing the pressure, as soon as you're under intimidation, you need to do the five things that Hezekiah did. He went to the house of the Lord, verse 1. He consulted with spiritual leaders, verse 2. He acknowledged his need for help, verse 3. He asked for prayer, that's in verse 4. And then he listened to the word of God, verses 5 through 7. That's what you need to do. Go to the house of the Lord. If you're under pressure, make a call to the church office. Come by, make an appointment. Or just drop by, talk to one of our ministers on call. Consult with spiritual leaders. Proverbs says that seeking counsel is the key to success. So let us help you. Let us give you advice so that you know how to respond biblically. Acknowledge your need for help. Don't think you can handle it on your own. Hezekiah tells Isaiah, this is like a birth where there's no strength to deliver. Imagine a woman all alone and the baby is breech. And there's no strength to deliver. She needs the help of a doctor or a doula or a midwife. There's no strength to deliver. Hezekiah is saying, I can't deliver my people. I need help. I need help. There's no strength to deliver. I don't have the strength to withstand the Assyrian army. So I'm asking God for help. Isaiah specifically asked for prayer. He says to Isaiah, Isaiah, pray for the remnant that's left. Keep in mind, this is the last city. This is the last stand of King Hezekiah. The Assyrians had come and captured city after city. He had fought and lost, fought and lost, fought and lost. Now he's there, last stand in the capital city. And he knows the odds are against him. And so he says to Isaiah, would you pray for this little remnant that's left? Ask for prayer. And then listen to the word of God. Listen to the word of God. The man of God brought the word of God to a king who wanted to follow God. Likewise for us, we need to listen to the word of God and then apply it. So our second principle for responding to the intimidation tactics used by evil powers is to take the matter to God immediately. Go to him right away. Third principle is found in chapter 37, verses 8 through 13, which is interesting because it actually records what Rabshakeh says in a letter to King Hezekiah. Rabshakeh sends a letter to Hezekiah, and look what Rabshakeh says in verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Notice that Hezekiah's enemy acknowledges that Hezekiah was trusting in God. Even his enemy knew in whom was his trust. You know, here 
we know that we trust in God. But does the world know that our trust is in God? Do they know, do the enemies of the cross know that our trust is in God? Third principle is make it clear that you believe the word of God. God had said via the prophet Isaiah, this city will not fall. The city will not fall. And Rob Shekes says, Hezekiah, your God is tricking you. You trust in God. He's lying to you. Hezekiah had made it clear that he believed the word of God. By the way, when you make it clear that you believe the word of God, it changes the dynamics of the discussion. It makes it an issue of their lies versus God's truth rather than your opinion versus their opinion. One of the main things that you need to do when you're confronted by someone who is hostile to the faith is to change it from a debate between two fallen mortal human beings and make it a debate between all mortal beings and the living God. That's the key method. The Lord showed me this many years ago. I was doing a lot of street evangelism and there would be some really hostile people. And I learned that if I argued with them, it was just a debate between two mortal, finite, fallen people and it produced nothing. What I had to help them see is this is not your opinion versus mine. This is all opinions versus God's. And the way you do that is by opening this book. I would like to share you what the word of God says because now the conversation is a different one. Now they're arguing with the Bible. They're not arguing with you. Who cares? To be honest, I, I love you all, but who cares what you think? No one out there should care what you think. You are mortal, you are finite, you are fallen. They should not care what you think. But what God says, everyone should care about. So make it a debate between this book and them, not between you and them. Make it clear you believe the word of God. This will make the issue not your opinion versus theirs, but their lies versus God's truth. Fourth principle and final one is found in Hezekiah's response to Rabshakeh's letter. And that's recorded in Isaiah 37, verses 14 through 20. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. That's that first principle again, isn't it? Take it right to God. He gets this letter. What does he do? Again, he just goes straight to God. He lays out this letter. Lord, look at it. Look at it. And then what does he do? He prays. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands. And they have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods at all, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. That's why they were able to destroy them. But now, O Lord, our God, 
deliver us from his hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Yahweh, are God. Fourth principle is so key. Devote yourself to prayer. And when you pray, request man's good for God's glory. Request man's good for God's glory. I want you to notice four elements of Hezekiah's powerful prayer. He begins in verse 16 by acknowledging God's authority and power. Remember how Rabshakeh began? The great king, the king of Assyria says... Hezekiah begins his prayer by saying, O Lord of the heavenly armies, the God of Israel who's enthroned above even the cherubim, the angelic host, you are the God of all the kingdoms of the earth and only you. You have made heaven and earth. He acknowledges God's authority and power. Then in verse 17, he affirms that the true danger is that God's name will be dishonored and that God's will will be mocked. In verse 17 he says, look and listen to all these words which Sennacherib has sent these messengers with which to reproach the living God. Notice, it's not God, we're about to be destroyed here, we're going to be killed. It's God, notice, they are mocking you. They're mocking you. That's the real danger. Hezekiah understood something. At stake was a whole lot more than the survival of the city. The king of Assyria had said, no God can stop me. And he had conquered nation, threw their idols into the fire. Another nation threw their gods in the fire. The king of Assyria was trying to prove that he was more mighty than all the gods of all the nations. If you remember the ancient world, most of the kings thought they were gods. He wanted to show he was the supreme God. Hezekiah says, Lord, Your name is at stake. What will all the nations think if Jerusalem falls? They'll think that Sennacherib is higher than Yahweh. So for your own glory, Lord, deliver the city. In verse 18 through 19, he expressed faith that God is the only true God. And then in verse 20, he requested man's good for God's glory. He says, oh Lord our God, deliver us from his hand. That's man's good. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Yahweh, are God, the only true God. He requested man's good for God's glory. I want you to notice the importance and power of prayer. Look at the next verse, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And then there is this lengthy prophecy about the defeat of the Assyrians. Judgment on the Assyrians. And I want you to notice that phrase in verse 21. Because you have prayed. There is, in this passage, an incredible juxtaposition. Hezekiah says, God, you're enthroned above the cherubim. You're sovereign. You're the God of all the world. You rule. You reign. You're absolutely sovereign. And then he asks him, please deliver us for your name's sake. And God says, because you prayed, I'll do it. Because you prayed. 
You know, on Sunday evenings, we're talking about evangelism and the sovereignty of God, and sometimes people see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man as somehow being a, in contradiction to each other. But I love Spurgeon's quote when he, someone says, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? And Spurgeon says, I never try to reconcile dear friends. They're not in opposition. They're not in opposition. Here we see both God's absolute sovereignty and then man's responsibility. God says, because you prayed, I'll deliver the kingdom. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And if you doubt that, just read this passage again. Lord, help us to apply these lessons. Lord, when we face trouble, may we go straight to you. Lord, may we humble ourselves and ask for your help. Lord, help us to centralize prayer. Lord, and to pray for our good, but Lord, for your glory. To pray for the good of mankind, but for your glory. To pray for our loved ones, but for your glory. Lord, help us never forget the power of prayer. We're so grateful that we can come to the one enthroned above the cherubim and ask. Thank you for that privilege. O Lord, our King, and it is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand.